Right now, I would like to uh, uh, welcome Matthew Sorens. Matthew is the church training specialist for World Relief. He earned his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, his master's from DePaul University's uh, School of Public Service. He's a co-author of two books, which uh, you'll see at the table back there, and I just welcome you to peruse those after we're done. The first is Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. The second is called Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis. And so uh, would you join me in welcoming Matthew Sorens this morning? Thank you so much. Is this thing, can you all hear me? There we go. Um, well, we've all just been discussing at our tables how we got interested in this topic or beyond the delicious food, what would bring you out on a, what more, I don't even know what day of the week we're at, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, thank you. It's been a, it's been a great but uh, busy week um, to discuss this topic of immigration. So I wanted to give you a little of my own background. I grew up in Wisconsin, in a part of Wisconsin, woo, cheeseheads, um, where we didn't have a lot of immigrants. I'm sure there was a few, but I didn't know them personally. And if, if I knew anything about immigration issues, it was what I heard on television, what I heard on the radio, what was forwarded to me in an email. And the general theme was immigrants are scary people who are a problem. Like that was sort of how, that was what I took in from some of the media that I consumed. And then for me, I really started thinking about this in some new ways. As a freshman in college, I spent a summer in San Jose, Costa Rica on a short-term missions program. And uh, I ended up working primarily with Nicaraguan immigrants in Costa Rica. And I would hear things about the Nicaraguan immigrants from my Costa Rican church friends, like, well, you know, the Nicaraguans, they're, they're responsible for all the crime in Costa Rica. Or they're actually responsible for a lot of bring, bringing a lot of disease here. Or they're either lazy or they're stealing our jobs. I never quite knew how those two worked together. Um, but you know, that was the rhetoric. And then I worked in this community five or six days a week of almost all Nicaraguan immigrants and their kids. And the families that I worked with were pretty much just normal people. People, not perfect people, but not uniquely bad people either. They were just working really, really hard trying to provide for their families. At one point I asked them, so I asked a, fr a friend, a Nicaraguan friend, so why would you come here? It seems like you get treated kind of really badly and get blamed for a lot of things and no one seems to really appreciate how hard you work. And one of my Nicaraguan friends said, you know, Mateo, here we've got food on our plates. We've got a little bit of extra money to send back to our family in Nicaragua to take care of our elderly parents, and that's all we can hope for. And that really stuck with me as I moved, came back to the U.S., to the Chicagoland area where I was in college. And I, at a certain point, I feel like God really just convicted me that I was very self-righteously concerned with how my Costa Rican brothers and sisters were treating the Nicaraguans. And at a certain point, I realized, wow, that is exactly the same rhetoric that I think I've been taught to believe about Mexicans or other groups of immigrants in the United States. And I realized that I didn't actually know any of the Mexican immigrants in Illinois, where I was living. Um, so as I finished college, I moved into a neighborhood, an apartment complex with 120 apartment units, and almost all of my neighbors <laughs> were immigrants of one sort or another. Many of them were refugees who'd been resettled by World Relief, which is where I started to work about the same time. World Relief is one of nine agencies nationally that resettles refugees and does so in partnership with local churches. Uh, others of my neighbors were, were immigrants, um, and many of them, I learned pretty quickly, were not here lawfully. That made me uncomfortable. I didn't know quite what to do with that. But 
I knew that I was supposed to love my neighbors, so I, I wanted to really press into what does it look like to love your neighbors when some of them may not be here lawfully? How do we think about that as Christians? How do we respond to that? Um, and that's really led to, in some ways, my work with World Relief, where uh, I worked as a legal counselor for a number of years, but the last six to seven years, my job in a couple different capacities with World Relief has been to help our church and denominational partners who are asking a lot of the same questions that I was asking personally. How do we think about immigration issues, whether that's undocumented immigrants who don't have legal status, whether that's refugees who fled persecution. Um, some of these are pretty controversial issues. And for a lot of Americans, it's a political issue, it's an economic issue, it's a cultural issue. And I say a lot of Americans, a lot of American Christians as well. Those are the primary lenses through which we viewed this topic. And our real passion at World Relief is to say, how do we view this as a missional issue, as a, a biblical issue? In fact, we commissioned a survey a few, about a year and a half ago now from Lifeway Research, a Christian polling firm that some of you may be familiar with, to and it really quantified some of what we had anecdotally observed over the years. Um, one of the most interesting things we found was we asked people, these are self-described evangelical Christians nationwide, what most influences your views on the topic of immigration? Only 12% said the Bible. And the Bible, the local church, the views of national Christian leaders combined were cited less often than the media. And even that is with what researchers will tell you is something they call the halo effect, where when you were filling out a survey, and people tend to answer the question as the way they think you're supposed to answer the question instead of sometimes what the truth is. So if you're an evangelical Christian and the Bible is a choice, it's probably the right answer. You know, like the Bible, Jesus, church, like those are what you're looking for. Still only 12% said the Bible is what is primarily informing my views on this topic. Um, so that obviously to me is something of a scandal for people who would say that the Bible is our authority for viewing everything in life. Um, we also found that 57% of evangelical Christians, 69% of white evangelicals, which is my category, say that the arrival of recent immigrants to the United States represents some sort of a, a, a threat or a burden to the society. Only 42% said the arrival of, of immigrants to the United States presents an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. Now, this is, you could choose multiple answers here. So even if you think that immigrants are bad for the economy, you could also say, but this is an opportunity for the church. But most people in most of our congregations don't see it that way. And I suspect that what's at play there is it's very difficult for our finite minds to see an opportunity when we fixate it on what we perceive to be a threat. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what I think that opportunity is, and then I want to talk mostly about what the Bible does say. We don't have time to talk about everything the Bible says in the next 25 minutes I have left. Um, but, and then I'll look at a few of the misconceptions that I think are fundamentally the reasons that we have such a hard time engaging this as a biblical issue. Um, because, and hopefully we'll have more time for that during Q&A, because I won't be able to address everything that's uh, in every issue here. But I want to start with this quote, because I think it speaks to the opportunity that is there. It's from Tim Tennant, who's the president down at Asbury Seminary, or out at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky. He says, 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. That's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. 
When we talk about that opportunity, I think it's important to note that God is working through the migration of people. He's been doing that throughout history, but you can see how he's doing that in very tangible ways in our world today. Not just in the United States, but including in the United States, which is a country with more immigrants than any other country in the world. Um, you know, we are all familiar with the Great Commission's command to go make disciples of all nations. We absolutely should do that by sending people to other parts of the world. But we're missing something rather profound if we haven't noticed that God has also brought the nations to us. And that's a two-way street. Uh, because on the one hand, many, perhaps most, depending on how you measure this, it's very difficult to measure someone's soul, but uh, a significant percentage of the immigrants who come to the United States are already believers. And many of them with, bring with them a vibrant Christian faith that breathes new life into churches and denominations that could use some new life. They bring with them a richness of experience. Um, I've had refugee neighbors who have fled persecution because of their Christian faith in Burma come to my door to make sure that I know about Jesus. And frankly, I've got some things to learn about following Jesus from someone who fled into the jungle and, to escape from their faith and then lived in a refugee camp for a decade. Because I've not had that experience, and I don't ever hope to. But the other side of that is that there are people who come in who don't yet know Jesus, people with a nominal faith background, people maybe from an entirely unreached people group. Um, there's different ways to measure what an unreached people group is, but by one measure from the Southern Baptist Convention, there are 361 unreached people groups within the boundaries of the United States, which is more than any other country in the world besides India or China. So it's an incredible opportunity, and I've seen that in the apartment complex where I lived for about eight years as well. I had a Somali guy. Uh, his name's Abdi. Most Somalis, as you know, are Muslim. It's one of the least reached countries in the world. He came to his English teacher, Josh, who's a good friend of mine and works for World Relief and lives there in the apartment complex, with, uh, lived there with us, and said, hey, Josh, you know, in my refugee camp in Ethiopia, I heard about this movie called The Jesus Film. Can you get me that in my language? Does that exist? And Josh was able to say, you know, yeah, it turns out that's available in a whole bunch of languages, and we'd love to get that for you and to tell you who we believe Jesus is. Again, we're not the great you know, evangelists at Abdi's door. Um, we're just his friends, and in that context of, of knowing that we are followers of Jesus, he feels comfortable asking us his questions, questions that, frankly, he would be pretty unlikely to ever encounter a Christian in Somalia. Um, there's just not very many of them there, many of us there. So I think there's an incredible opportunity, and I think it's an opportunity that we are not fully realizing as the church in the United States. And I think that a big part of that goes to the reality that we've seen as a whole, we've seen this as a threat and not been able to recognize the opportunity. Um, we also can't presume that just because people who are of a non-Christian background come to the United States, that they're necessarily going to be interacting with the Christian faith. Uh, a study out of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell a few years ago found that 60% of those of non-Christian religious traditions, um, most of whom it turns out are immigrants or their children, 60% in North America say they do not personally know a Christian. Not that they've never read the Bible or been to church, but they don't know a Christian. And we might say, wow, those people need to go and get out more, because there's a bunch of Christians in Phoenix. But maybe we need to put the mirror up to ourselves and say, maybe we need to do a better job of going into those communities, of loving our neighbors that we were commanded to do, and in the process of having the opportunity to point people to Jesus. So another thing we found from LifeWay research is that only 21% of evangelical Christians say they've ever been challenged by their local church to reach out to the immigrants in their community. 
But that's not because the Bible has nothing to say on this topic. Um, the Bible actually speaks to this quite frequently, and I want to run through some of the, the most significant themes in the scriptures. Again, we won't touch everything this morning, um, but just some of the big themes. One is, first of all, this is an issue that appears over and over and over again, especially in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for a foreigner residing in the land, basically an immigrant, is the word ger. That word alone appears 92 times just in the Old Testament. Um, one of, to me, one of the passages that is the most clear on this is in Deuteronomy 10. And this is a common English Bible translation, which I can't, I'm not endorsing as a whole, but I really like it because it translates that word as immigrant, which I think helps us hear it a little bit better. It says, The Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. He enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. Now, listen to this because it, it's pretty pretty clear. I'm not going to exegete this for you. That means you must also love immigrants. Like That doesn't take a biblical scholar to, to understand. It's pretty clear. Um, one of the themes that we find, you see it in that passage, you see it in many other locations in the Old Testament, is that often when the immigrant or the foreigner, the sojourner, the stranger, the, the alien, depending upon your translation into English, is in the Old Testament, it's right alongside the orphan and the widow. These uniquely, groups, uniquely vulnerable groups of people whom God makes very clear he loves, whom he commands his people to love. So, for example, Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Jeremiah 22, do justice and righteousness. Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Or Zechariah 7, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Another theme that we find in the Old Testament is that the Israelites are repeatedly commanded to extend love and compassion and welcome to immigrants, particularly because they were themselves foreigners in the land of Egypt. Um, you must not oppress foreigners, Exodus 23, 9. You know what it's like to be a foreigner, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Basically, God says, and he says this both as the people are, are being rescued out of Egypt, and then a generation later as they're about to enter the promised land, he says, look, you know what it's like to be immigrants because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and you were not treated well. You were mistreated. So once I have brought you out of that situation and established you in this promised land, you need to remember that it was my grace that brought you from where you were, that place of desperation, to where you are now. Because if you forget that and you tell yourselves that this was all you and your, you know, your, your own hard work pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps, then you'll forget my grace and you'll turn to the people who come after you and you'll be just as terrible to them as Pharaoh was to you. Now, I think that that should resonate with those of us who are American Christians because most of us have an immigrant story that could inform how we treat those who come after us. Um, I, that's a part of our country. We are, we, are, we are proud of being a nation of immigrants. But I think we tend to remember the cute parts of our heritage. You know, the, like, I'm Dutch. Does anyone else here Dutch? Well, I'm sorry for you, because I was taught by my grandmother that if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Um, you laugh, but it's kind of racist. Um, but, you know, that's like my immigrant ancestry. We've got the little wooden shoes in my basement, and my parents have the little windmill out front of their house. We're very proud of being Dutch. It's my dad's excuse for being really stingy. Um, I've inherited a little bit of that. But I think that it's very typical to remember certain foods or certain kind of cultural practices and to forget 
how our ancestors were treated. But if you look back at just about every immigrant group that's come to this country, it's been, a, it's been a, at best a, mystic, a mixed experience. You can go back to Benjamin Franklin saying that the, the German immigrants coming to Pennsylvania, at the time the British colony of Pennsylvania, could no more acquire our language and customs than they could acquire our complexion. He said, there's just never going to assimilate. Now, that's funny, right? Because I can't go you know, look at two nice white people and be like, you're German, you're British. I wouldn't know the difference. But for Mr. Franklin, that was such a chasm, it was never going to be crossed. And the same sort of rhetoric has basically been used about every subsequent immigrant group. Well, these ones are different. They're never going to fit in. Whether it was the Irish coming to New York City, no Irish need to apply. Whether it was the Italians, who at one point a congressional study found were just inherently prone to criminality. Like, it's not even their fault, it's in their genes. But on that basis, we've got to find a way to keep out some of these Italians. Uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 was actually one of our first federal immigration restrictions after a congressional study that found that the Chinese race was inherently inferior to the European races and that they were, lacked sufficient brain capacity for democracy. Again, pretty ugly racialized rhetoric. But on that basis, in 1882, the U.S. government said no more Chinese immigrants, and that was the law of the land until the 1940s which was changed mostly when we wanted China on our side in World War II. And they found this particular law to be rather offensive. Other Asian immigrants were excluded until the 50s. Um, so we have, we have that history. We also have the Statue of Liberty saying, give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses yearning to breathe free. And there was, have always been Americans who really believed that as well. And frankly, the church has stood on both sides of that divide. There's bright moments in our history when we've been even against the forces of most of our culture saying we want to welcome people. And there have been other times in our history where we have said, where we've been leading the charge, frankly, where we're Protestant Christians and we don't want anything to do with these Catholics or Jews coming in through Ellis Island who are changing the character of the country. The challenge of Scripture is to remember those stories to allow them to inform how we treat those who come today. One other biblical theme that I think is really important is the idea of hospitality. Uh, I think I grew up with a misunderstanding of hospitality the way that we use hospitality in English is either an industry, like hotels, restaurants, or it's having your friends over for lunch. Uh, like my wife and I had some friends over for dinner not long ago, and on their way out the door, they, you know, putting their shoes on, they said, well, thanks so much for your hospitality. The problem with that, while having your friends over for dinner is a great thing to do, I recommend it, it's not actually hospitality. Because hospitality in the Greek of the New Testament is philoxenia. It is literally the love of strangers, which is a lot harder than loving your friends, right? To paraphrase Jesus, you love your friends, big deal. So do the tax collectors and pagans. Uh, but what Christ calls us to is beyond that, to love those who are strangers to us, who are unknown to us. Now, that's a countercultural idea. I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons with public service announcements about stranger danger, right? Like, strangers are scary people. Strangers are a potential threat to you. And I get why we tell that to children. I understand that. I'm all for protecting children. But I think sometimes as adults, we have that same attitude. Even as a society sometimes, our, we, we're trained to see people who are unknown to us, who are different than us, and to say, wow, potential threat to me on my left. Now, I'm not going to tell you the Bible promises those people are safe. But I can tell you that in Romans 12 and in 1 Timothy and in Titus, especially for those of you who are pastors, this is actually a requirement for leadership in the church, we are commanded to practice hospitality, to be hospitable to be lovers of strangers. And in Hebrews 13, it suggests that when we do so, it says some people, by showing hospitality to strangers, have entertained angels without realizing it. 
one last biblical theme that I, I think is important to mention, especially in a place like Arizona. Um, it's not necessarily a passage that is about immigration, but it relates to immigration. Uh, because a lot of people, when I speak in a church, will hear a lot about, well, God says to love immigrants, okay, but God didn't talk about those who were here illegally. What about that? That's kind of the big elephant in the room around a lot of questions on immigration right now. And frankly, we don't have a Bible passage that instructs us on how to respond to those who didn't get their passport stamped. Like, that wasn't a biblical principle in the Old Testament. But we do have a teaching in Romans chapter 13 that is binding on us as Christians to say, that says we should be subject to the governing authorities, that the authorities that exist have been established by God. It goes on to say the government does not bear the sword without reason. If you, a lot of Christians, if you ask them, what is, what do you, how do you think about immigration biblically, that's the first passage they'll go to. And sometimes the only passage they'll go to. Like That's where we start the conversation and stop it. Uh, now, it's important to know that most immigrants in this country have legal status. Um, roughly 70%, or a little bit more, uh, of the immigrants residing in the United States today, that's about 40 million people, are present lawfully, whether as naturalized U.S. citizens or with a green card, temp- some temporary legal status. So this doesn't necessarily impact everyone, but there are somewhere around 11 million people in the United States who are present unlawfully. Um, we can talk about how they got here. It's, there's a whole range of ways you could end up here without legal status. About half those people came in on a valid visa and overstayed. The other half came unlawfully across the border. Um, but that's where, for a lot of Christians, this issue gets really sticky. Um, now, I think it's actually not that difficult in my mind for those of us who are blessed to be U.S. citizens. Because under the law, and there have been situations, including here in Arizona, where there's been some elements of law that could test this question, but in general, under the law, it is not illegal to show kindness to people who are immigrants, regardless of their legal status. There's no expectation that you report someone who you think may not be here lawfully. There is uh, no, you know, you can have people come to your church, you can serve them communion, you can teach them Sunday school, you can let them teach Sunday school, as long as you're not employing them, that's where you'd cross kind of a legal line in terms of compensation becomes employment, which is unlawful. You can teach people English. All those things are lawful, and there's not a, com- there's not a conflict there. Um, so the question of, well, should we follow the law, or should we love and welcome our immigrant neighbors? Yes. Um, it's not that difficult. Now, I should add, we could change that. There have been efforts, again, some of the elements of your law here in Arizona a few years ago, and some elements of certain federal proposals would at least put into question some of those challenges. Um, is it lawful to, to minister? So, for example, in your, the Arizona law has an, a dynamic around transportation, which a, a, a prosecutor might argue that transporting someone is illegal under that law. Now, many elements of that law were struck down by the Supreme Court, but not all of it. Even at the federal level, in 2005, we had a bill um, that didn't pass, but that, it passed the House, didn't pass the Senate, so it's not law. But it got close enough that World Relief really started engaging questions of immigration policy for the first time, and it said basically that it would make it a felony to knowingly assist someone who is present unlawfully in furtherance of their unlawful status. Well, what does that mean? Nobody knows because it didn't get signed by the president and go to some judge to interpret. But I, I, we were concerned at World Relief that the English classes we do at the church down the street might be assisting someone. Actually, we were kind of hoping they were assisting someone. That was kind of the point, right? Was it assisting them to stay lawfully, unlawfully in the country? That wasn't the express purpose, but by learning the language, they're going to integrate in better. And it, it wasn't an impossibility that we could face that sort, of, uh, you know, that sort of challenge, that sort of interpretation. 
I met with a member of Congress at the time who told me, well, I actually supported an amendment to make it a misdemeanor instead of a felony. It's like, well, thanks, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, but our position at World Relief since that time has been we don't think it's the role of the state to tell the church whom they can minister to. Um, that that's actually a very significant religious liberty concern. Rick Warren says the church must always show compassion. A good Samaritan doesn't stop and ask the injured person, are you legal or illegal? Now, this issue is even, actually, and again, just to be clear, that law didn't pass. So at this point, we're free to minister. But I think it's a good reason to pay attention to immigration policy, um, just to look for, for ourselves. And then, of course, there's a question of how do we look out for our brothers and sisters who are undocumented. And there's a lot of those people. In fact, the church in the United States is growing fastest in immigrant congregations. And within any immigrant congregation of almost any ethnicity, there will be at least a few people who are not present lawfully. And in some of them, it's half or three-quarters of the congregation. Um, so that's an even harder issue. And I've talked to many, you know, when I worked as a legal counselor for World Relief, I'd had an, a number of conversations and with some of my neighbors who were wrestling with this issue. Um, there's a lot of undocumented followers of Jesus in this country who are really anguished by that situation. I, I remember one guy in my neighborhood, he's a Baptist. He's been in this country for, at this point, probably 25 years. He came at a point of economic desperation, trying to feed, him, feed his kids, so he came with his wife and, at the time, two kids. He's had three more kids here who are U.S. citizens. Um, he wasn't a Christian when he came to the United States, but through the love of someone whom he met here, was introduced to Jesus, became very serious about his faith, went to Bible college. He knows his Bible really well. And he reads a passage like Romans chapter 13, and he really struggles with this. He wants to be right with the law. And his first step then was to go see, well, how do I do that? What do I need to pay? How can I fix this? And the lawyers and the legal counselors at World Relief who've talked to him have had to tell him, sorry, you don't have an option to go back and come the legal way. You can go back to Mexico, no problem, but there's no coming back. Not in one year, not in five years, not in ten years. doesn't matter how much money you pay. It doesn't matter if you're the best lawyer in the world. You just don't qualify under the law. And so he's really wrestled with this. He's very seriously considered, I need to go back. But it's, that's a, not a simple decision. On one hand, his wife doesn't feel quite the same level of conviction on this that he does, and he wants to keep his marriage together. His kids, who are the youngest of which are now in high school, they'd much rather live with their cousins than move to a country they've never been to before. And he would point me to a passage like 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. It says that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that is precisely, even before he was a Christian, that instinct as a father was what compelled him to come in the first place, to provide for his family. So he asked me, so what, what should I do? And frankly, I don't know for sure. It's a complex question. It's not as simple as what part of illegal don't you understand. It's also what part of provide for your family don't you understand. What I would love to be able to tell him, what I've been praying to be able to tell him for years now, is here's what you need to do to make that right. Here's the fine you need to pay. He would be more than happy to pay just about any amount of fine. He's already spent a ton of money on both real lawyers and fake lawyers, which I wish he wouldn't have gone to. Um, but there's a lot of people willing to take your money to give you, you know, to get your hopes up about legal status. Uh, he'd be, he'd do just to jump through whatever hoops he needed to go through to make things right. And that's really what we've advocated at World Relief in terms of policy. We're not saying amnesty that says you broke the law, it's forgiven and forgotten. Frankly, that's not on the table. Nobody's been discussing that in Congress. Neither until maybe this presidential cycle has anyone seriously been discussing, let's send everybody back. Um, because that's a huge amount of money. Uh, not to mention, you have literally millions of U.S. citizen children who you can't send back without changing the Constitution. 
So you're going to put all those kids in foster care. I mean, it, the, it's just an incredibly complex situation. What we've advocated for more than 10 years now at World Relief, and, and we've seen a lot of movement towards this among a broad range of evangelical organizations. We've been part of something called the Evangelical Immigration Table that um, the National Association of Evangelicals helped start with us, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. So a lot of these evangelical institutions have come together and said, we need a policy that basically does three things. One, uh, we believe it, we should have secure borders. That's an appropriate thing for our country to have. So we want it to, it should be harder to come illegally to this country. And since half the people who are here unlawfully came on a valid visa, we need to look at our visa systems and how we follow up on people who overstay as well. <laughs> But the second piece is we then need it to be much easier to immigrate lawfully. I think most Americans have no concept of the reality that our immigration system is incredibly cumbersome, and it is literally impossible for most people who would like to immigrate lawfully to the United States to do so. Now, of course, some people are able to if you have the right relationship. I'll talk about that in a minute, maybe. But we think it should, we should have a system that meets the needs of our labor markets, that allows families to be reunited, and that allows the country to continue to be a place of refuge for those fleeing persecution. Then the last piece is, well, what do we do with people like my, my Baptist friend who, uh, who wants to be here lawfully and is, you know, is very desperate to do so, has been here a long time? There ought to be a process, we've said, where people could come forward, pay a fine, which is why this is not amnesty, because amnesty is free grace. We're familiar with that idea as a Christian. You don't buy it. Um, that's not what's on the table in terms of policy. Um, there would be a fine involved, and then people would be able to get a temporary legal status and show over the course of a number of years that they're working, they're paying taxes, they're not in any sort of criminal trouble, and then eventually they'd be able to apply for permanent legal status, and then if they can pass a citizenship test in English and of civics and history, just like anyone else with a green card, they'd be eligible for citizenship. That's basically the bill that was sponsored by two of your senators in 2013 in the Senate, um, and, but we've been advocating that well before it was a, you know, back going to 2006 or 7 or so. Um, so that would, in our mi my mind, that would really honor the law the way the Romans 13 tells us to. Because our current system, we have a law. It was mostly written in 1965 at a time when our economy was quite different than it is today. And rather than, it, it's basically unenforceable because no one wants to spend the resources and have the social dynamics of splitting up families. So there's a lot of looking the other way and pretending the law doesn't exist. Rather than having a law that we could actually honor and enforce and respect, which would take some revisions. So I'm basically out of time, um, but I will save, I think we're going to queue up a video, and then I will, all the questions that I didn't get to, well, why are those people here unlawfully in the first place? Why don't they just go sign up for a green card? What about the economics? What about refugees? That's a big controversial thing right now. I hope you bring those things up in our Q&A time. Absolutely. Thank you, Matthew, so much for engaging with us, with us and helping us to stimulate our thoughts. And I just want to let you guys know, if, um, if this has really perked your interest, uh, later on we're going to have a surge lunch downtown Phoenix talking specifically to the issue of refugees. And Matthew is going to be there at New City Church, which is right across the street from the library on Central Avenue. Um, 11.30, Danae, that's, that's what time it starts. So 11.30, downtown Phoenix. You guys are all welcome to join us down there and hear more from Matthew on that. But in a moment, we're going to move into a time of Q&A. You can continue to submit your questions via the, uh, the URL there. But before that, as Matthew said, we're going to roll a video that, uh, that can hopefully engage us with this issue even more. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, 
He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nation will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was a stranger. I was a stranger. I was a stranger. Fui extranjero y me invitaron a su hogar. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. You did it to me. Then he will turn to those on his left and say, Depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. And you did not look after me. And then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? He will reply, truly, I tell you. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Excellent. Well, we're going to move into a time of Q&A now, and so just continue to submit those questions. We have quite a few that have come in, so thank you so much for engaging with us on this. Uh, The first question, Matthew, that I want to pose to you, and let's think uh, maybe as individuals with this question. What are some practical things we can do to help distressed people that are coming to Europe and America, searching and actively searching for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, safer and more productive lives? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. So we're primarily probably, but not necessarily exclusively, thinking about refugees in that context, so people who fled persecution. Um, And it's a very different circumstance in Europe and in the United States. I think that's important to just clarify, because I think a lot of the fear in the United States is based on what's going on in Europe, where you have, last year in 2015, there was more than a million people who reached Europe to seek asylum meaning they're claiming to be refugees. Most of them probably are, but they're not being identified as refugees out in their own country or in, a sec- you know, in their own region and then brought to Europe. They're making their own way there. And um, there have been terrorist attacks in Europe. The big ones that we've seen on television have not actually involved refugees, but that doesn't stop people from being very concerned about the impact of refugees on security. Um, In the United States, it's a very different process because people who come as refugees, that was 70,000 people last year, are vetted before they get on an airplane. They're identified as refugees abroad by both the UN first, usually, and then by the US State Department in collaboration with the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the National Counterterrorism Center, the FBI, um, through a very thorough process that usually takes at least 18 months. Um, That's part of why only in the last 
four months have we seen any significant number of Syrian refugees arriving because it takes a long time to vet them. And we've been holding them, keeping them in Jordan or Turkey or Lebanon or Egypt while we determine, can we verify that these people are indeed refugees, that they are among the most uniquely vulnerable refugees, because the U.S. only accepts less than one half of 1% of the refugees in the world in any given year. And are we sure that they're not a national security threat or a public health threat? Um, so there's a lot of opportunities to care for those individuals in the U.S. Um, one thing, and my colleague Nathan's going to mention this before we leave, we're really excited that World Relief is actually opening an office here in the East Valley, um, which we have not had before. Um, we're one of the nine agencies nationally that resettles refugees, so our job starts, we, the, our government does the job of screening people, deciding who's coming, we don't have a role in that, but we start when they arrive at the airport. And why we, our goal at World Relief is not just to resettle refugees, it's to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. So our, our real ministry model is that it's a, what we call a good neighbor team, a small group of five to 15 people from a local church who will be there as that refugee family arrives, who will welcome them, who will walk alongside them for the first, we usually ask people to make a six month commitment. Our not so secret hope is that that actually becomes a long-term reciprocal friendship. So their needs diminish as they've been here for a little bit of time. But our hope is that there's a friendship that goes on indefinitely. Of course, that's up to both the church and to that refugee family. Nobody forces them to have friends. Um, but we find that most of them are very eager to have friends, to be welcome. That's a lot of folks have told us the biggest need they feel here is someone who can help them understand the culture, understand the language, which it turns out is really a difficult language. Um, basic cultural adjustment things, like how to go grocery shopping or how to read your mail. When you get a letter that says you won a million dollars, you probably didn't win a million dollars. You know, like those sort of things that... Um, you know, any one of us could, could help with. So that's some, some people in here are disappointed by yeah. what you just said. <laughs> um, next, I'm going to tell you that not everything you read on the internet is true. Um, <laughs> it'll be very disillusioning. But um, so that's one very practical way that we would love to have all of your churches be a part of. We hopefully, it, we need to raise some funds, but if we can do that, we hope in the next, I don't know, Nathan, six months, is that or not? Can I say that? To be right around there, um, presuming all the, there's a, you know, a few kind of, Checks that have to get checked with local government and federal government, that sort of thing. But yeah. we'd like to have refugees arriving here in the East Valley. I would just say in terms of individuals, and this is true for churches, and we could talk more about this as well, advocacy is another really important way to, you know, especially for pastors, um, to speak up on behalf of, as it says in Proverbs 31.8, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Now, refugees can speak for themselves, and we need to do a better job of listening to them. But in terms of policy refugees and other immigrants, if you are a non-citizen, you don't get to vote. If you can't vote, most elected officials don't care very much what you think, but most of you, I'm guessing, are citizens. And that means not only do you get to vote, but you can influence how other people think about these topics. And we're very clear, we're not endorsing a candidate or a party. We're very much nonpartisan. Um, but we do want both Republicans and Democrats to pursue policies, whether that's on refugees or broader immigration issues that we think are consistent with biblical values. In terms of refugees, I mean, that's Last year, there was a bill to shut down the entire refugee resettlement program. It didn't pass, but it got closer than we were comfortable with. This morning, there's news that there is an effort to insert a, a provision into a, a budget bill that has to pass, saying no Syrian refugees. So there could be, we could be seeing a government shutdown over the question of whether or not we have Syrian refugees coming in. And you can also, I guess, think about how I have Syrian refugee friends. They're, they hear the news. You know, like, they know how that they are apparently such a threat to people in the minds of so many Americans that it would be worth shutting down the whole of the U.S. government. And you can imagine how welcoming that feels. Right. 
even though the experience of most refugees we've had has been very positive in terms of the local church welcoming them. But when they hear the news, they hear that actually a lot of Americans don't like them very much. Well, there's a lot of questions also related to legality. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it might be helpful to pose this question in terms of give us a posture or disposition as you answer this question. So can one be pro-immigration and yet still be against illegal immigration? Yeah. Well, what does that look like? Yeah, I think our position at World Relief has been we do not... We think we should, have, we should have reforms to our system so that, as we said, it is far more difficult to immigrate unlawfully because we don't think that's the best method to come to this country, either in terms of respecting the rule of law or for those individuals who are putting themselves at risk, making a very dangerous journey. I mean, those who are coming across the border. It's a lot safer to come on a tourist visa and overstay. Um, so we do not think illegal immigration is a good thing. We do think immigration is a good thing. I mean, that's true... Im it's part of our national heritage. We think it's, frankly, vital for the U.S. economy, which isn't our first priority, but you can spend a lot of time talking about the economics of this and how positive Im immigration is for the U.S. economy. Um, so what we would really like to see is how do we minimize illegal immigration while increasing lawful migration? And let me just explain real quickly, because I know this was, for me, probably the single biggest misconception around immigration issues before I worked as a legal counselor. I thought that if you wanted to immigrate to this country, you like, got on a boat and showed up at Ellis Island. Because that's how it worked for my ancestors, right? And I know that people know that Ellis Island is a museum now and not actually where you come into the country, but people think there's some sort of similar process. And that people who are here unlawfully were either like, misinformed and didn't know where that office was, or didn't have enough money to pay maybe, or... You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. There's people who think, well, they want to be here unlawfully because then somehow they benefit economically from that, which is actually very much false. Um, there's so many misconceptions. The reason people are, we have 11 million people unlawfully in this country goes to how legal migration works, which is basically there's four ways to come lawfully to the United States. The first is a family-based visa. Under the law, there's at least 226,000 family-sponsored immigrant visas available every year. That works pretty well if you are the spouse or the small child of a U.S. citizen. Very well, meaning probably six months to a year and a few thousand dollars and not if you've been here unlawfully in the past or you have any sort of contagious disease or a criminal history. But, you know, for most people, that's a good process. It works less well if you're the sibling of a U.S. citizen. Those cases are currently being processed from the Philippines, for example, from the early 1990s. It's about a 25-year wait. Mm -hmm. But that's the worst-case scenario for family, but a worst scenario would be you don't have the relatives. The next option would be an employer sponsor. There's 140,000 employer-sponsored immigrant visas available each year. Uh, companies like Google or Microsoft or Facebook who bring in a lot of highly skilled tech workers will say that number is completely inadequate to meet their needs and allow them to compete with companies in other parts of the world because there's not enough people steady in those sectors in the United States. But the real lack of visas is actually not for the high-tech workers. It's for those who are not classified as highly skilled. So of those 140,000 employer-sponsored immigrant visas, only 5,000 per year can possibly go to someone who does not classify as highly skilled. So if you're coming to do agricultural work or work in a hotel or restaurant or any number of other sectors of our economy, you're competing with the rest of the world for 5,000 visas a year. It's basically an impossibility. For historical context, 5,000 is the number of immigrants who came to the United States on an average day 100 years ago. And very few of them had master's degrees. Hmm. But that's now our system for, um, you know, if you're coming to do what we consider low-skill work, which frankly isn't all low-skilled because I don't have the skills to pick strawberries 12 hours a day. <laughs> Um, but it's a different set of skills than I have. The third possibility is something is refugee status. 
So if you are fleeing persecution on account of your, your race, your religion, your political opinion, your national origin, or your social group. But if you're fleeing poverty, you don't qualify. If you're fleeing a natural disaster, you don't qualify. If you're fleeing violence, but we can't prove that it's because of one of those five reasons, you don't qualify. And if you legitimately are a refugee, you have about a one-half of 1% 1 chance of being selected because there's 21.3 million refugees in the world, and we took in 70,000 last year. The last possibility is the diversity visa lottery, which is an online lottery run by the State Department. Odds of winning last year were about 1 in 300, so better than one of those scratch-off games at the gas station, but not very good. And you can't enter if you're from Mexico. Or India, China, the Philippines, South Korea, Canada, United Kingdom, any of the countries that already have the most immigrants in the U.S., the point of the diversity visa lottery is to make the immigrant stock of the United States more diverse. So I, basically the congressional idea there was we have enough of those people. And I know that's kind of like heady to go through all these you know, intricate, inter, very like intricate elements of the law, but I think it's important because we tell people to go wait your turn in line, and there's no line. There's actually like 10,000 lines, and most people don't qualify to stand in any of them. Mm -hmm. And if you do, it might be a 20-year wait, it might be a one-year wait, it depends on which, which category you fall into. But immigration law is incredibly complex and very much designed to make it difficult to come to the United States. But if you manage to get here other than lawfully, you will almost certainly find a job. And we'll let you file and pay your taxes. I think most people don't realize that you can file your taxes if you're present unlawfully in the country. Um, you'll you know, in many ways be integrated economically, but not legally. And you'll always have holding over your head the possibility of being sent back. Thank you. I don't remember what the question is, but that's what I answered. So. You, you got to it in a multitude <laughs> of ways. Um, the next question actually has to do with uh, some political conversation, specifically in regards to the criminal activity of illegal immigrants. We've just heard some things kind of broadly stated. Yeah. Um, uh, generic stereotyping of illegal immigrants. Can you just shed some light on maybe some of the, the yeah. details with that? I think you hit on it a little bit earlier, but yeah. go into some more detail on that particular aspect. Yeah. Of the first thing I would immigration. say is when somebody's murdered someone or raped someone or committed a serious crime, presuming they're not in jail for the rest of their life, I would want them to be deported. So nobody's standing up for that situation. But what is problematic is we see isolated cases and when it's an immigrant who did this, we then presume that's, what all the, that's how all immigrants are, or that's how all undocumented immigrants are, or all Mexicans are, or whatever, or all Syrians. You don't see a lot of headlines about U.S. citizen commits murder. You know, like, that doesn't usually make the headline, but it turns out U.S. citizens do commit most of the murder in this country. In fact, U.S. citizens commit crimes at significantly higher rates than the foreign-born. That's been true for decades. Um, a few ways to measure that. Um, one is that 1.6% of immigrant males between the ages of 18 and 39 are incarcerated, compared to 3.3% of native-born U.S. citizens of that age and gender, which is kind of prime criminal activity age and gender, I guess. Um, another look at, way to think about this is if it was true that undocumented immigrants, illegal immigration, caused violent crime, um, it would not be true that as the number of undocumented immigrants has tripled between 1990 and 2013, the violent crime rate during that time, according to the FBI, has declined by 48%. And it's actually declined in some of the cities with the most immigrants, like New York City or Los Angeles, which have actually seen their crime rates go down dramatically while their immigrant communities have gone up. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's because immigrants are more virtuous than U.S. citizens. I think it has a lot to do with the consequences. So if you are here, even as a lawful immigrant, you're here with your green card, and you steal a candy bar in the state of Indiana, 
Um, that is a crime involving moral turpitude that is a deportable offense. Whereas as a U.S. citizen, if I stole a candy bar in the state of Indiana, you know, it's a slap on the wrist, I can get it expunged, it's a pretty low-level misdemeanor. Now, and just to show you how complex immigration law, in Illinois, where I live, you'd have to steal a candy bar on two different occasions to be deportable. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but like, that's, it goes to how a misdemeanor is defined under the state statutes. Um, now, if you're undocumented, you don't even have to have stolen the candy bar. You just have to have been a, thought to have stolen the candy bar, and you were wrongly accused, but once you're in with the, with the police being fingerprinted, there's a chance of you being turned over to ICE and facing deportation. Mm. So if you are here without legal status, you have a strong incentive to stay away from law enforcement. Um, because we, I also think there's this uh, mistaken belief that we don't deport anyone in this country. The Obama administration has deported more people than any other presidency in the history of the United States. It's a, between 300 and 400,000 people every year. And many of those people have serious criminal issues, and I don't have any problem with them being deported. A lot of them do not. They have traffic violations. And you take them away and separate them from you know, a bunch of U.S. citizen kids and a, a single mom who's left to raise them. And it's, uh, I've, my wife and I have people who live in our house who are facing a deportation proceeding based on a simple traffic violation. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, it turns out when, you are, when, you're, when your case is based on something unserious, like a traffic violation, they keep deferring your case because if you were a terrorist, they'd get rid of you real quickly. You know, like they know the high priorities, but the guy in our family, a friend of, this friend of ours, his case has been pending for several years now. But eventually, under the law, he's likely to be deported, barring any changes to legislation. Wow. Um, and again, he was pulled over taking his kid to the hospital. He shouldn't have been driving. Hmm. Like, that's true. He was not a licensed driver. But... I don't see how it benefits society for his seven kids to be left without a father. Yeah, yeah. And that is some of the nuance and complexity that you get into that um, in some ways causes you to pause a little bit. Mm -hmm. Some of the rhetoric that's out there that seems so black and white, you get into cases like that, and it really causes you to consider the implications yeah. of across-the-board legislation. Yeah. Can you just speak to, there's a few questions that came in in regards to Arizona specifically. How is Arizona, the state of Arizona, or Phoenix, engaging with this issue? You can speak historically, you can speak currently, but give us, uh, give us the landscape of what's happening around the state of Arizona to the best of your knowledge. Yeah, and it's definitely not my expertise. Uh, you all are quite famous in Arizona, in the immigration community. Um, in 2010, you passed uh, SB 1070, which was uh, a unique piece of legislation that then got copied in a whole bunch of other states. Um, that it made it a state crime to be present unlawfully in the country. Now, that basically, that provision, that was the largest provision, got struck down by the Supreme Court a few years later, so it's not, it's not binding. But it was, it was a very polarizing bill, obviously. You had a lot of people who rallied behind it. You had a lot of people who saw this as, as horrible. I'll say World Relief, we opposed the legislation, um, though we weren't here, so we didn't spend a lot of time focusing on it, but we, we were seeing the results in other states that picked up similar pieces of legislation. Um, even some of those elements that go to some of the religious liberty issues of like, well, if it becomes unlawful for me to transport my neighbor to the hospital, that is almost the precise definition of the Good Samaritan story. Um, and now it's a little bit unclear under the law, like it's not being used to prosecute youth pastors. But I have a friend who's a youth pastor in Phoenix who, you know, he said, we're going to keep picking people up for youth group in the church van. And if they want to, you know, arrest me, I'm going to call the newspaper, and I hope they do. You know, like, that was sort of the, <laughs> that was his attitude at the time, because he felt that in Acts, 7, in Acts 
Um, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. And his call was to minister to these young people who, frankly, weren't likely to come to youth group if they were, didn't get picked up in the church van. Um, fast forward a few years, you had a bill last in the last legislative session that was more focused at refugees. And again, it was, we had a similar bill in South Carolina. There's a few states looking at this sort of legislation. It would have made the Refugee Resettlement Agency, so like Catholic Charities or the International Rescue Committee or World Relief, legally liable for what a refugee might do after being resettled. So, now, in terms of crime or that sort of thing, like financially liable. Um, and South Carolina had a similar bill that they were looking at. So just, I mean, to be clear, we don't think refugees are going to do anything bad. Historically, statistically, they do bad things at significantly lower rates than U.S. citizens. But has a refugee ever got drunk and had a, you know, driven under the influence? That has happened. That happens among U.S. citizens on a fairly regular basis as well. That's a bad thing to do. We strongly, strongly discourage it. But we can't be financially liable. You know, we probably couldn't be opening a World Relief Phoenix office if that legislation had passed. It didn't pass, and that speaks to a lot of mobilization, including by a lot of churches. I know the Surge Network, Jim Mullins was telling me, you know, he was meeting with the governor's staff, explaining why this was a bad piece of legislation. In South Carolina, that bill sailed through the state Senate in a bipartisan vote. So it's not always a partisan thing either. Right now, it's pretty popular among both parties to say, we're afraid of Syrian refugees. And again, Syrians are a small percentage of the refugees coming in the United States, like quite small of the overall. The most refugees coming to the United States are actually, they're more likely to be Christians than, of any, than Muslims or of any other religious tradition, at least in the last several years. Um, but that bill, it sailed through the South Carolina Senate and got to the House, and we had all sorts of Southern Baptist pastors at the hearing. There were 30, Southern, 30 pastors, most of them um, church partners with World Relief and a bunch of college students, and no one showed up to speak in favor of the bill, and it died. So that kind of advocacy actually can make a huge difference. That's excellent. Um, last question, and you can kind of continue with that vein. These are church leaders. Um, as we speak on and engage with social issues, um, or as we tease out the implications of the gospel into our society and into our lives, how would you advise us on how to speak to this? Because I think sometimes when we speak, sometimes the political grid can come up yep. for people that can shut them down. How do you, how do you recommend speaking to this? from a pastoral perspective, from a church Great leader question. perspective, um, to kind of get through that grid, to get through that filter, yeah. and that obstacle? Again, our real challenge, we do care about the policies. You probably get that from me. I pay a lot of attention to what's happening in terms of immigration policy. But we want to make sure that's subjected to the scriptures and not the other way around. So we're starting with what does the Bible say? What are the missiological implications of this? And then letting that inform how we think about the elements of justice that impact public policy, as opposed to starting with a, a political position and looking for some verse to baptize it with. Um, so I would challenge people, you know, at some point in your, in your uh, preaching cycle, you should be talking about what God's word says about immigrants. That doesn't mean you need to talk about legislation, but, like, when you're preaching on Ruth, it should come up that she was an immigrant, and that unique element of vulnerability. Like, that's an important part of her story, and we're skipping over that. We're doing what we sometimes might accuse other Christian traditions of doing, of kind of cherry-picking the parts of the Bible we want. Um, when you do the scripture reading, and it's about the, the, the alien, the orphan, and the widow, talk about the orphan and the widow, but don't not talk about the alien. I've been in so many churches where, you know, that's the reading, and the reflection is all on orphans. 
absolutely, we are called to care for orphans. I'm not in any way saying that's not true. But nobody's going to get upset if you talk about orphans, and somebody might get upset if you talk about immigrants. But <laughs> all three of them are in the same passages. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. I think the other thing that's really important, and this is maybe counterintuitive, but I find if I only talk about the Bible and I don't address some of the concerns people have that they're hearing from cable news or from talk radio, they are not satisfied. You know, so the facts actually are important. Maybe that's not the, the sermons, you know, maybe that's not what you do in the sermon, but maybe it's a, an afternoon session where you say, let's look at the facts of who immigrants are or who refugees are. Refugees have become probably as, as or more controversial than undocumented immigrants in the last year, um, which is a kind of an interesting, like, flipping itself on the head from what it has been for the 10 years I've been at World Relief. Um, but even that goes to the question, most people hear refugees, and they're, what they basically mean is they don't want Muslims. They're not really upset about the Anglican Burmese who are coming in, who are coming in in pretty significant numbers. Um, but um, So how do we engage that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who, who want Muslims to know Jesus? Um, how do we think about those topics? Um, and addressing some of the facts. The last thing I would say is, in terms of public policy, what I don't want you to hear me say is just talk about the Bible and never bring up policy, because policy actually matters. It has huge impacts on the people whom we're called to serve and love, and frankly, who are already part of our congregations. But what we've tried really hard to do at World Relief is to be talking about policy without being partisan. So you will never hear us endorsing a party or a candidate. Um, frankly, it's become so polarized, it's gotten a little bit more difficult because it sounds like I'm speaking out against certain candidates by saying things that used to be very bipartisan. You know, like, refugee resettlement was completely bipartisan a year and five days ago before Alan Kurdi washed up on the beach in Turkey and that became this huge media news story. News story. Um, but one way we've done that is as part of the Evangelical Immigration Table, which I mentioned. We have this very basic statement of principles that is actually pretty hard to disagree with I think it's because it is so generic. But there's six principles that are consistent with biblical principles. You saw the video was made by the Evangelical Immigration Table. Um, and, you know, leaders from a broad range of denominations and institutions who've endorsed that statement of principles. So I know we're in Assemblies of God Church. George Woods signed on right at the beginning of that. Um, so you're under good kind of cover if you're part of a denomination. There's a pretty good chance your denominational leader has already affirmed this. That statement is on the little response card that's on your table, I think inside the World Relief brochure. We'd love to invite you to sign on to that. Again, you're not endorsing a specific policy or a specific party, certainly, or, or candidate. But it's a way for us when my colleague Jenny, who meets with members of Congress on a pretty regular basis, when she meets with a senator from Arizona or a member of Congress from, uh, I don't even know where we are, Mesa? Are we in Mesa? <laughs> um, you know, when Almost she Albuquerque. With, when she meets with your member of Congress, it's one thing when she says, well, this is the National Association of Evangelicals position, or this is World Relief's position, or this is the Southern Baptist Convention's position. And they kind of shrug, because that doesn't mean that much to them. But when, well, here's some broad principles that 15 pastors from your district want you to take into account as you pursue immigration policy, they start paying attention. It actually makes a remarkable difference, because they know your churches. They've driven by them. They, you know, they know that you represent a lot of people. So I'd encourage you to take that as an opportunity um, as a way to engage on the policy questions without, hopefully without alienating too many people. There will always be people who get upset by this issue. I find that when we can have a, a conversation as opposed to just a, a one-sided lecture where we hear people's concerns, go back to the facts, and more, more than, anything, than anything else, spend time really reflecting on what the Bible says. And hearing the stories of people too. I would, you know, have someone share a five-minute testimony of their own experience of being welcomed by a church. 
And that often just kind of melts people's antagonism. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us and uh, sharing with us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, we weren't able to get to all the questions. If you have more, Matthew and some other folks from World Relief are going to be here. They'll be in the back. And so if you want to continue this conversation with them, I'd recommend that. Also, I just want to highly recommend the two books that are back there on the table, Welcoming the Stranger and Seeking Refuge. If you're wanting to engage and learn more about immigration in general, uh, Welcoming the Stranger is a fantastic resource that goes way into way more detail concerning some of the things that Matthew hit on this morning, as well as uh, Seeking Refuge. If you want to understand the process of what it is to be a refugee, that book is a fantastic uh, resource for you to have. So I can't recommend that enough. So um, with that, I want to invite up Nathan from World Relief, and uh, he's going to share some things with us as we close. Thanks, Josh. Um, And thanks, Matt. Um, You know, as Matt taught us uh, more eloquently than I can, um, Jesus defined our neighbor uh, pretty broadly. Uh, as people that might have a different cultural heritage than ours, people that might speak a different language than we do, people that might even uh, have a different way that they came to this country than we did, people that might um, share a different religion than us. But one of the things that strikes me time and time again about loving our neighbor is that it's pretty hard to do that unless you actually literally are that person's neighbor, unless you share some sort of physical space. Um, Historically, uh, the valley has been home to uh, a great number of the world's refugees uh, that, that have come um, you know, to Arizona. Uh, about 3,000 refugees per year come to the Arizona, uh, come to the Phoenix area specifically, and about 1,000 go to Tucson. Uh, that's actually a pretty considerably large number. Historically, however, most of those refugees have been resettled in the sort of central corridor of Phoenix or in the West Valley. About two years ago, um, several churches in the East Valley began meeting on a regular basis to talk about how do we serve refugees without driving an hour each way uh, to spend time with them. And so that birthed um, a two-year period of proposal writing and prayer and community engagement and setbacks and more proposal writing and more prayer. And finally, today I'm able to come before you and say that World Relief is launching what we're calling World Relief Phoenix, but it would be specifically a refugee resettlement slash church mobilization site here in the East Valley. Um, Several churches here have been strong uh, uh, proponents of this site, and so right now what we're looking for is church partners who will help make this a reality in the next few months. Um, My colleague Marianne uh, is also here from World Relief. We're going to be back at the table selling books slash happy to talk to you more about what that looks like, and really, like, if you've got to take off, and I understand if you do, um, you know, just put your email address on this this form and put it on the table. I promise we're not going to spam you. Just, like, check on the box that you'd really like to learn more about local opportunities with World Relief. Thanks. That reminded me, too. One last thing before you leave. There are some other info cards. If you could fill those out before you leave, we'd love to have your info to be able to connect with you on future events like this. Matthew, would you come up and just close us in prayer, pray for us concerning this topic and for our churches? And let me just say real quick, too, I forgot to mention, um, there's a bunch of options on that that checkbox. We can send you a devotional. We can send you um, some other resources. We can tell you more about empowering churches abroad to serve refugees. That's a big part of what World Relief does, and empowering our churches to serve the vulnerable is outside of the United States, in places like Jordan and other parts of the Middle East. So anything we can be helpful with, just check the box and we can be in touch with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we're mindful that, that you were an immigrant, that you were a refugee forced to flee persecution as a little child and go to Egypt. 
And I don't know, God, your word doesn't tell us specifically how you were treated when you got there. Um, but Lord, I pray that we would be people who, as immigrants come into our community, uh, that we would treat them the way we would want to treat you. And that the church which would rise up and shine our light in a unique way in the midst of a time when migration is so much in the news and so much in the headlines and refugees are fleeing in so many places, Lord, that your people would be a light on the hill um, that would point people to you. And that as a result, more and more people would, um, would see our response, would come to you, and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Matt. You guys have a great day.